Welcome to the KBO Radio Bike Show. I hope this finds you well and that your days are full of light. My name is Alon Rob, and co-host Nedra Deadweiler will return next month. A warm greeting and embrace to you, Nedra. Today's show is dedicated to the memory of Ana Campillo of Barcelona, who left this earth much too soon. A teacher, political activist, award-winning poet, mother and loving and supporting friend she is missed dearly in whatever universal dimension you are anna i hope you are still writing poetry and also cycling may your memory be blessed anna may your soul be bound with the living today's guests are both from portland oregon in the first half of the show our guest is journalist and author jeff mapes whose 2009 book peddling revolution how Cyclists Are Changing American Cities has just been reissued and updated. In the second half of the show, our guest will be blues musician and scholar Steve Chesseboro, who, will also, who lives car-free and will play some of his music live. We are glad that you, our listeners, are with us today. I hope that if you are in Portland, you have had a chance to participate in some Pedal Palooza events. This yearly three months of bicycle rides, celebration, community building, and fun is rolling on for another month. For more information, see pedalpalooza.org or shifttobikes.org, and that is the number two in the website address. Over the years of Pedalpalooza, we have interviewed several of its organizers and individuals who made it possible. Those interviews, like all our shows, are available on http bikeshow.portlandtransport.com. Our engineer today is Ty Walker. The show will be made available for future listening by Josh Hetrick and Chris Smith. As always, a big thank you to Ty, Chris, and Josh for helping make the show possible. Our first, show, our first guest today is Jeff Mapes, whose name might be familiar to readers of the Oregonian newspaper and listeners to Oregon Public Radio. Jeff has been a senior political writer and in that capacity has covered city, state, and national stories. He is also the author of the excellent book, Peddling Revolution, How Cyclists Are Changing American Cities. The, 19, uh, the 2009 work, which has been recently updated, was praised by musician and cyclist David Byrne in a New York Times book review as, quote, great ammunition for those of us who would like to see American cities become more bike-friendly. Great recommendation for a great book. Hello and good day, Jeff Mapes. Hey, Alana, it's great to be with you. Uh, it's so nice to be here, and I metaphorically uh, ring my bike bell for you. <laughs> Thank you. And... Uh, you grew up in Oakland, California. Maybe tell us a little bit about your childhood and were bicycles part of your life? Well, you know, it's funny. Bicycling uh, came a little late to me. I grew up in the hills of Oakland, and as a young kid, I didn't quite get it. There was too, much, too many steep hills uh, to ride, and it wasn't until I uh, 
spent a week at my uh, uncle and his family's house in flat Sacramento <laughs> and was able to jump on a bike. And it took me about a day to get it straight. I was maybe in fifth grade then. And uh, my poor cousins didn't see their bikes all week long because I was just out on them, uh, at least one of them, all the time. And uh, I was a very avid bicyclist in high school. I, it, it was about a six or seven mile ride to my high school and I still remember a lot of up and down. I still remember what good shape I was in <laughs> from, from riding that far. And uh, and I've, I've always had a, a bike as an adult, but uh, it really wasn't until the early 90s that I became what I think of as a full-fledged uh, urban cyclist. Hmm. And uh, you were a journalist for many years. Um, in your journalistic career, what were some of the stories you're most proud of? And also, are there any stories that slipped through your fingers, anything that could have landed you with a Pulitzer Prize but you thought was insignificant? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are things. You know, there's always uh, scandals that you miss and things that, that somebody else uncovers that you, uh, that, that you wish uh, that you had done. You know, I, th there's a lot I feel good about. I, uh, I I did a lot of reporting on Oregon's lottery system. I wrote one of the first really in-depth uh, pieces about our uh, addiction problem. Uh, you, you know, I've, I felt good about that. Um, you know, just uh, frankly, I was uh, in many ways on the front line of our political coverage for so many years at the Oregonian. And, and at OPB, uh, you know, it's a much smaller news staff there. And so there, there, uh, it always felt like there was a lot of responsibility. I was one of the, at the time, sort of the few gatekeepers closely following state government, closely following who the governor was and the other elected officials. So uh, it was a, a great ride and, and a lot of interesting stories through the years. Mm -hmm. One of the oddest ones was I... Uh, covered the first launch of the space shuttle way back in the early 80s in Florida. That was mm -hmm. very exciting. Uh, at the same time, working for the newspaper uh, gave me some chances to get going on uh, bicycling, which uh, steadily became a greater interest of mine. And I was able to, uh, early on when I was doing research, spend a week in uh, the Netherlands following a uh, group from the city of Portland studying their bike in infrastructure. And, and that was a great trip. And uh, boy, I mean, in many ways kind of changed my life mm. seeing what I saw there. And I'd like to get to that in a minute. Um, before that, that, when you started in journalism, probably typewriters, fax machines, phones were used, a newspaper came out once a day, maybe there was an evening edition. Um, with all these changes, where where do you see journalism going? Well, it yeah, it is in huge flux. The thing I really worry about mm -hmm. is local and regional news coverage. You know, the, the national newspapers seem to have migrated to the Internet and are, mm -hmm. are doing pretty well. The New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, etc. What I worry about is the lack of news coverage in many communities, many particularly smaller cities mm -hmm. and, and uh, more rural communities have lost their newspapers entirely. And even many large cities now, uh, th there's no large news staff mm -hmm. providing coverage there. And, uh, you know, the Internet has also opened up some, some windows, but uh, 
I, I'm I'm still very worried that we're not ha- getting the kind of in-depth mm-hmm. coverage that I really need think we need of how our government works, how businesses uh, in you know every region works, and and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, you have written the entry in the Oregon Encyclopedia about the 1971 Oregon Bicycle Bill. Uh, how did that bill come to pass, and what is its significance? Well, you know, it was really kind of the first in the nation to say really that a a portion of state transportation dollars really need to be devoted to bicycling and pedestrians. Often, you know, the name of the bill refers to bicycling, but it but it does have a, an important component for pedestrians as well. And it's really in some ways you could almost say it's the beginning of the complete streets movement, which I'm sure you've heard of, which is saying you really should design streets so that they fit all modes of of travel, not not just designed solely for for cars. And this puts some money behind it, money in the sense of saying that uh, if there's a project uh, taking place to build a new street or uh, do major upgrades to a street, that that needs to have some money reserved for bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. And and so in that sense, it's been very important. I mean, it's it's still a, feel, a, a, a huge battle to actually get those projects on the ground. As you can imagine, the transportation officials aren't always um, accommodating that. Although in Oregon, I think we have a pretty good record now of doing that. And one thing that actually strikes me is, for example, uh, in the in the whole fight over the um, uh, a new Columbia uh, crossing, you know, a bridge on I five over the Columbia River, and you can certainly debate that. Nobody, there really has not been much debate about whether it will have improved bicycle and pedestrian access mm-hmm. on that bridge. I mean, everybody has pretty much agreed on that from the beginning, and that's maybe the only thing about that mm-hmm. bridge project that isn't controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been serving on the City of Portland's Bicycle Advisory Committee and with some wonderful people. We thank you for your service. And Roger Geller. Uh, we're an advisory committee, so whether our advice is listened to is another matter. But it's been a really interesting lesson in the different forces in, in the Portland political world, uh, developers and activists and politicians and bureaucrats, and all of them playing together and against each other sometimes. Um, So over the years, you've covered many campaigns, elections, uh, including the battles for the bicycle bill, the bottle bill. Are there any quick lessons you gathered about what makes a campaign successful? Uh, Do, is bribery necessary to get (laughs) things done or? Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've often joked that the main problem with bicycling is it's too cheap of an activity. Mm. There are, is not the gigantic amounts of money involved. In fact, I, I don't know what the fact is now, but when I was working on my book, I remember I did some research and I concluded that the American bicycle industry generates about the same amount of economic activity as the hosiery, in other words, the <laughs> sock industry uh, in the United States. I mean, it's just not... Uh, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about bicycling. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, um, 
money is power in this country in many ways. And, uh, you know, I've, I've sometimes joked that if only we required a prescription to buy bicycles, <laughs> that, that, you know, frankly, it wouldn't be a bad thing if, if physicians would prescribe uh, bicycles uh, for, you know, for people to maintain their health, to get more exercise. Mm-hmm. The bicycles would be vastly more expensive, but the pharmaceutical industry would probably make sure then that there would be a lot more accommodations for bicycles. They'd have the lobbying power to do it. And, you know, it's funny. um, There is starting to be more money in bicycling. And, you know, with, with electric bikes, they're relatively expensive. We're seeing now a commonality with mic what we call micro mobility you know elect- electric scooters uh you know these one wheel uh kind of skateboard sort of things and so there's there's a, a lot of way different vehicles at least I'm starting to see in bike lanes and uh so in that sense it does generate a little more economic activity but uh that is one thing that sometimes it's a problem it gets overlooked because it's relatively speaking such a thrifty activity Mm. i like that idea of physicians prescribing bicycles as part of the mental and physical uh, regimen of health and also um, in schools having bicycles given to kids to ride and so forth Um, you are listening to the kbo radio bike show my name is alone rob and Our guest today in the first half of the hour is journalist and author Jeff Mapes, who's written a wonderful book, Peddling Revolution. And um, let's get to the book a little bit. Um, So how did you move into, how did you decide to write a book about bicycles? And in your research, uh, what did you discover that surprised you the most? Yeah, you know, Really, what uh, what started me on the book was I became a bicycling commuter myself. At the time, I lived about three miles away from my office downtown, and um, I had started bicycling more with a friend on weekends. Um, for one thing, technology helped. For years, I had a 10-speed. It was kind of less comfortable just doing day-to-day riding, hunched over on that, and, and then hybrids started coming out of the market, you know, more upright bikes and uh, felt a little more comfortable riding in traffic. And we rode all over the city on Saturdays or Sundays. And, um, so I started riding to work and found our nice days and really enjoyed it. And gradually as I became more confident and the bike infrastructure started to improve, you know, I always say one of the things that got me riding year round, because at first I didn't like riding in the dark after daylight savings time ended, but uh, at the time, they had just built the East Side Esplanade, which had nice lights on it. And that gave me sort of a good um, uh, path to ride at least part of the way home. And that helped uh, get me used to riding uh, at night as well. And so the more I started doing this, I started really thinking, you know, this this infrastructure is great. Uh, I'm finding it easier to get to work. The, they put some new... Um, uh, paths and, and lights on the Broadway Bridge that made that less hazardous mm-hmm. for cyclists. And I, and I wondered, are, the, are they doing this in other cities? What's, what's going on here? And, uh, and so that led me out on sort of the, the voyage of discovery, so mm-hmm. to speak. 
And um, you start the book with a brief history of cycling in America and note that, quote, bicycling, once largely seen as a simple pleasure from childhood, has become a political act. Uh, what do you mean by that statement? Well, you know, and, and this really goes back to the 70s in many ways. I mean, this was a period when, you know, America was in a lot of ferment. There were a lot of movements, and, and there was a bicycling movement then where people were really starting to see uh, the value of bicycling, you know, as, as a short transportation mode, one, you know, for relatively short distances. And there was a lot of pushback at the time. A lot of motorists were not happy at all about um, uh, sharing the road with, with cyclists. And this is something that's continued uh, for years. In fact, after a, a few modest uh, improvements in some cities in the 70s, things kind of seemed to go backwards for a while. Finally, there was a federal transportation bill in the early 90s that started to open up some funding for this type of infrastructure that was in advance. So it's, sometimes it feels like it's been two steps forward and one back, but it's it's something this country our, our country continues to struggle with, I think much more than in Europe, saying, you know, the, the, the motor vehicle is not a good uh, uh, implement for all trips. I mean, it's, you know, vastly changed American life, but it, but when you use it for all trips, it becomes a problem even, you know, even more so. Um, and Portland has made tremendous strides as far as infrastructure, the number of cyclists. Uh, there's still a lot to go, a long way to go, and actually now there's a lawsuit spearheaded by by Cloud, and uh, I hope that in a future show we'll have the lawyer and some of the plaintiffs and maybe some of the people from the city, and the suit is basically about the fact that we have a bicycle plan from 2010, but many of its ambitious goals have not been met. So. It'll be interesting to follow that. Um, in your book, you um, have a chapter titled Learning from Amsterdam, and you mentioned the trip you took um, to the Netherlands with city planners, bike advocates, elected officials. What can we learn from that city and other Dutch cities? Well, I, I think the, the, the first thing is that, yes, average, average people can cycle. You don't need to be an elite athlete. You don't need to take your life in your hands to, to go out on your bicycle. I mean, it was it was so inspiring to me to see just average folks um, riding everywhere. You know, you I, I remember one time just sitting at a, a outdoor uh, table at a coffee shop or something, just watching the cyclists go by, and I'd say, oh, that woman would be driving a minivan in the U.S., you know, mm -hmm. had a kid on her back maybe, and... You know, Arn and Arn, it just you could just see types you wouldn't imagine are on a bicycle uh, in the U.S. And you know, they they managed to really produce much of this infrastructure in a relatively small number of decades. It was really they didn't get serious about it until the '70s during the oil shortages. And um, and you know, there there is more of an historical support. For cycling in Amsterdam and, and other cities. And also part of it is the Dutch have been uh, accustomed to 
living in cities where they're not quite they're not as sprawling as American cities. But there's nothing there that is magic and mm-hmm. and can't be be done in any other country. I mean, their weather, for example, in the Netherlands is very Oregon, <laughs> Western Oregon like, you know, rainy and uh, at least a, a a good chunk of the year. And um, so the, there's nothing there that uh, necessarily you say, oh, that that makes it so easy to cycle there. They they have made it easy to cycle there. And it's also flat, and they also have had a um, long history of social movements and some progressive politicians. You know, I went to uh, a very hilly city in the Netherlands, Maastricht, uh, way on the southern edge of the country, and it's quite a hilly city. And the only difference is I noticed more multi-speed bikes there. But... Mm. Bicycling was still, uh, you know, much, much more common than here. Uh, our time is just flying by, uh, but... Uh, you warned me about this. Yeah, um, and I have, still have so many questions, but um, your book that was updated recently uh, by Oregon State University Press, uh, what what has changed since 2009 as far as the sta- state of cycling that you covered? Yeah, I think the big difference is that, um, as I say, there's sort of been this micro-mobility revolution. I mean, electric bikes are huge, a big part of it. We now have bike share systems around the country. Those really didn't exist uh, when I was working on this uh, book. And the electrification of so many other things, too, scooters and skateboards. and uh, And I think the electrification of cars will lead, I'm hoping, to some smaller vehicles. I'm hoping that it all isn't going to to be large vehicles. You know, the average uh, American doesn't really drive that many miles a day. And if we could have very small, uh, inexpensive electric cars that really are, are more about the size of golf carts, frankly, uh, I think they'd be a lot safer. There'd be more room on the road for everybody. And frankly, it would meet uh, the transportation needs of, of a large number mm. of people, uh, even even if they're not, you know, they're in further out suburbs or they're worried about, uh, you know, riding on two wheels. Mm. That You know, there's a lot of room between a 20-pound bicycle and a 4,000-pound vehicle, which mm. seems to be what the average car weighs right. these days. And you've been riding um, e-bike recently. Um, how do you find the experience? Are there any times that you get lazy and instead of going up the hill, struggling up some hill, you just turn on the motor and zoom by? See, I don't have that kind of bike. Uh, you uh, have to pedal Oh, or my bike, and I'm I'm a. <laughs> that's that's the 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 line I draw. I don't have a throttle, and um, you you. It's true. You can sort of choose the how how hard of an exercise you want to want to make it. And you know, frankly, it's one part of aging for me. Uh, I had a fall not on a bicycle, but down s- some stairs. I really need to be much more upright now. It it kills me that I can't ride my old ultralight road bike, and but. You know, we all have to adjust to age as we get older. And, and if it's necessary, I'll switch to an electric tricycle if that's what it takes to keep pedaling. <laughs> and um, without uh, 
putting you in the position of a prophet, based on your close observation of Oregon politics and life over many years, uh, what might be next for the state as far as transportation, is unchecked sprawl and more homelessness in store, or do you see bicycles replacing cars and uh, helping to usher a bright green future rooted in caring and equality? You know, that's that's going to be a big question because uh, on one hand, we do have many more people working more from home. I mean, they don't have a commute anymore. And so that, in many ways, may give them the opportunity to use bicycles or other micro-mobility devices uh, to, to go to uh, shopping or other uh, close things like that. The other thing, though, I am very worried about is the safety on our streets. There's way too much crazy driving going on. I feel like mm -hmm. this is maybe more anecdotal, except the statistics bear me out that we do have more uh, vehicle fatalities, particularly involving pedestrians. I do think people appreciate areas that are walkable mm -hmm. and bikeable. Look how so many people go to uh, you know, Europe, or they go to Disneyland, even for a vacation. <laughs> what is it that you do in Disneyland? You walk, mm -hmm. and and it's in fact it's designed. You know, there it, it is designed on an old downtown. Mm -hmm. You know, an American downtown of the 1920s or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think there is a lot of desire for that. And frankly, we need to live that way because we can't continue to sprawl out uh, as a, if if we want to really tackle climate change. That's one thing we need to do is live more compactly. Mm -hmm. Amen. And um, as our time is almost up, what's next for you? Are there any other books aching to be written? Or do you wake up in the morning and think about what's next as far as creating another wonderful book? Oh, thank, uh, <laughs> I don't have another uh, book in mind. That is a, a big task right now. Um, but uh, I, I continue to do some writing and... Uh, there's a lot that interests me out there. I've been retired from daily journalism since last September, and I'm, I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> um, and um, we didn't have time to read from the book, but for those interested in uh, getting your book, um, where can they find it and how to order it? Or just a regular bookstore here in town? We'll right. Uh, uh, Pals, I believe, has... Uh, copies of it. And uh, like I, uh, Alon said earlier, uh, Oregon State University Press is the publisher. Certainly it's available on their website. And other certain online booksellers, is that how we should put it? <laughs> uh, as long as it's not one gigantic one that owns everything and its name starts with the letter A. That one... We oh, I was so thinking <laughs> of pals.com, but okay. Yes, I know. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, and yeah, so it's 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 gotten a good run. And I guess I should even say that the uh, Multnomah County Library, at least at various points, has had quite a few copies. So yeah. I appreciate that. And perhaps you'll also do maybe a reading at one of the local bookstores would be great to to have that. I don't know how much they do that on sort of reissues. It does have mm. a new epilogue, which I, I tried to sort of bring it up to date to, to, to some degree. But really, the, the point of this book in many ways was to give people a sense of 
okay, what is it with these cyclists I'm increasingly seeing out on the, mm. out on the streets, and um, and where are they going as a movement? And, mm. and I'm happy to say, you know, the subtitle, How Cyclists Are Changing American Cities, I do think they're having an impact and are continuing to change cities. Amen, amen. <laughs> you are listening to The Bike Show, broadcasting from the KBO studio in Portland, Oregon, on 90.7 FM and streaming on kbo.fm. We have been speaking with journalist and author Jeff Mapes. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing your knowledge and insights, and much success with your writing and writing. So thank there you. you. Go. Thank, thank you. you very much. In the second half of the hour, we our guest will be blues musician and scholar Steve Ches- Steve Chesibor. Uh, Steve plays harmonica, guitar, percussion, sings, and tells stories, too. He has written a master's thesis at early blues musician Bo Carter and has a book out from University Press of Mississippi, Blues Travels, The Holy Sites of Delta Blues. He has played with some blues greats and taught the blues at school. So after a short musical interlude, Uh, We will be here with our second guest, Steve Chesiburg. Stay tuned, please. I thought I was going to have to do a hot exit, as we called it, LPV. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. listening to the KBO Radio Bike Show, and uh, we just spoke with journalist and author Jeff Mapes. 
And our second guest uh, here in the studio is blues musician and scholar Steve Chesseborough. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, thank you for being here today. And you came by bike. You've been uh, living car-free for a while. Uh, tell us about that experience. Well, yeah. Since I moved to Portland, I don't know, maybe 18 years ago, and gradually got more and more into bicycles and got around by bicycles except to get myself and my equipment to a gig. And um, I thought I still needed a car to haul my instruments and sometimes sound equipment and stuff. And uh, I thought there was no way out of that. But then a couple years ago, I discovered this e-cargo bike that I have now, the Turn HSD. Unfortunately, we can't show the radio listeners what it looks like, but uh, it's uh, electric assist and it's a cargo bike with two beautiful big bags on it that you can carry a guitar in each one if you want to. You can carry two guitars and I got a optional front rack that I can carry an amp when needed. Uh, I, I bought a small amp that fits beautifully on there and you can tie other stuff onto the the back if you need to carry any uh extra you know mic stands or things like that there's places to attach so you really can get around and get to gigs by bicycle <laughs> and it's good that you play the guitar and the harmonica and not a uh, elaborate drum set or maybe a <laughs> piano that i've seen people actually yeah. have a bicycle a bicycle carry you know a piano but that would might be a little more challenging for you well right i've seen ba upright bass players in town get around without a car um either by with a little wheeled thing that they can carry onto the bus or in some cases with a bike trailer yeah with a bike trailer you could carry a drum set too pianos are challenging but pianists um often just use a piano that's there when they get to the show any you know they often don't carry their piano with them anyway and what <laughs> Do you remember the moment you decided, I'm going to go car-free? Was it a certain process of thinking or uh, one moment of uh, discovery? Uh, it happened kind of... I mean, I've never liked <laughs> cars. I never went through the period of being of buying into this whole America's love affair with the car thing. That never had any effect on me. Um... I didn't get a driver's license until I was 25, which I know a lot of people think is horribly late. Um, so I never really, and that was because I had a job where I needed to have a license for it. So I, so in a way, I never needed to get out of my head. But I did drive a car for many years, yeah. And I worked as a newspaper reporter in Phoenix, Arizona for years. So of course, I did have to drive a lot, own cars, and drive around for that. I don't know how I would have done that car free. Mm. But I think it was actually during the pandemic when um, there was less car traffic around. When you went out walking or biking around the streets of Portland, it was so nice and peaceful at the early days. Remember, in the early days of the pandemic, yeah. you could actually hear your footsteps when you were walking in <laughs> uh -huh. the city. You could hear birds. It was like, it just seemed like this is more like how it should be. And I don't want to contribute to it being less like this by by driving a car around anymore. Let's figure out a way to not do that. And you also deliver uh, food on your bike? With meals oh, yeah. How, tell us about that. Meals on Wheels, mm -hmm. which, uh, as you probably are familiar with, it's a national organization that 
that helps people who are homebound, elderly, or sometimes younger people who just for some reason can't prepare their own meals. Anyone can request Meals on Wheels if you need it. And uh, people often uh, drive. <laughs> In fact, the Meals on Wheels organization even refers to people who do what I do as drivers, even though I've tried to get them to change that word to deliverers and encourage. There are a few other people in town who deliver by bicycle, but even in Portland, which is a huge biking town, most of the deliverers do it by car. So, uh, yeah, doing it by bike is just a wonderful thing. The recipients, the clients appreciate it so much more. They put a smile on their face when, you, when they see you coming up on a bicycle to deliver the food. And you're often making a lot of stops, you know, and you're in residential neighborhoods. It's, it's unwieldy to be getting in and out of a car anyway. So, yeah, if anyone listening would like to volunteer for Meals on Wheels by bicycle, also you don't have to own a car. You don't even have to be of driving age to volunteer anymore if if you could do it by bicycle and they do have bike trailers at some of the meals on wheels headquarters that you can borrow some of the locations that you would start from some of them have trailers if you don't have your own that you could use uh, if you have a cargo bike you might be able to do it without a trailer but yeah you are carrying quite a bit of stuff of course and uh, before we get to the music um you also involved in something called the bb king ride uh, what is that oh well so I am a blues musician. Yeah, I play the blues of the 1920s and 30s is what I recreate. I sing and play, and I'm going to do some for you all here soon. And I also teach other people to do that. And I've written a book called Blues Traveling, the Holy Sites of Delta Blues. So I'm kind of an expert on that kind of music. And uh, since I'm a guest on the bike show i figured i'm here to talk about any intersections between the blues and bicycles and you would ask me to maybe sing a song that has to do with uh, with bicycles and there aren't any i mean and i'm pretty sure there are there might be one that i don't know about mm -hmm. but i'm pretty confident there aren't any blues about bicycling um which there are bicycles in the mississippi delta there are a lot of blues about transportation. I'm going to sing some of those about other forms of transportation, except cars. There are blues about cars. I'll leave those out for this show. But uh, but I was thinking the great B.B. King, who's probably the most well-known blues artist, certainly of our time. He died a few years ago. He made an epic journey by bicycle mm. um, as a teenager. So B.B. King was born in 1925 in a town called Indian outside of Indianola in a rural area Indianola Mississippi which is in the Delta his parents broke up when he was four and he moved about 70 miles east to a town called Kilmichael with his mother and he li lived with her there and then with his grandmother um, and that's where he learned about the blue he heard the field workers singing and he had an uncle who was a musician who lived there and especially his main musical influence there was a preacher who used the guitar and sang during his services and would sometimes visit and let B.B. King touch his guitar and taught him a few chords. So that was where he really first gets into the idea of playing music. Um, but then his mother dies when B.B. King is nine and he goes to live with his grandmother in that same town, Kilmichael. But then his grandmother dies when he's 14. So he has a lot of tragedy here in his young life. He lives alone for a little while, lives with relatives, and then his dad shows up, who he didn't really know very well. His dad shows up and says, 
come on, I'm going to take you to where I live now. So his dad brought him to an, another city, Lexington, um, to live with him and his new wife. The dad had remarried and and there and had kids. The, his new wife had kids. So B.B. tried to fit into that family, but he didn't get along with his dad very well. He didn't get along with the new wife or the siblings very well. Also, he saw some bad things happening in that town. He witnessed the lynching in the town. He just... Uh, had a hard time there and decided when he was 16, 1941, he saved up as he was working already in the field. Um, he saved up enough money to buy a bicycle. And it was a Western Union, a Western Flyer. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. I think it was like a department store bike. So he bought it was kind of a kid's bike, um, no gears or anything. So he bought that and decided to ride back to kill Michael where he had lived before that he wanted to move back there. So if you look it up on Google now, it's a, it says a four-hour bike ride. And it's probably with improved roads and improved bicycles they're talking about. So for him in 1941 on that little bike, it took him two days to get there. And he slept in a barn the night in between. And he did have a little bit of money that he thought he was going to use for food, but he decided he better get some grease he stopped at a garage of some sort and got because his bike was making a lot of noise that he better grease up the bike so he he spent his money on that and uh he managed to eat the second day he was famished of course and he saw an, an older woman sitting on her porch and stopped and he was a shy and stuttering kid but he managed to get up the courage to stop and say ma'am you know i'm i'm very hungry do you have anything to eat and she said wait a minute and she went in the house and came out he said with a plate of biscuits and a glass or a pitcher of uh, buttermilk and he and he wrote I'm here to tell you that biscuits and buttermilk was the best food anyone ever had in their life so he ate that and uh, some years later he tried to go back to find that woman to thank her and, may, and pay her back and he said he couldn't find her or the house he's wondering if it was like a vision or something mm. but somehow he did get to eat even though he could see no trace of her there so anyway he did make it to back to town that he was his to his destination and he found a place to live with a white plantation owner who gave him a place to live and he worked for him for a few years and that man who he considered a good man helped him buy a guitar and uh he was there for a couple of years and then he ended up going back to the delta actually to indianola when he was 18 and that time he did catch a ride with someone in a in a car he didn't ride a bike that time but just that bike. So that bicycle is kind of an emblem to me of Baby King's determination to do things and to get places. And there's a, the same type of bicycles in the Baby King Museum in Indianola. It's not the actual one that he rode, but another Western flyer like the one he rode. And there's a poem I saw that someone wrote B.B. King and his bicycle in which the, the bicycle changes into a tractor that because he, he had a job later driving a tractor through the cotton field. So and the, the poet sees it as being an extension of that. So anyway, I just what, think there's what, something what beautiful. Story. Um, <laughs> you are listening to the KBO Radio Bike Show. Our guest is blues musician and scholar Steve Chesabrow, who's going to play some blues now. So Yeah, Steve, let's try this. All right, so, yeah, I couldn't think of any bicycle blues, and I think it's because bicycles were not that commonly used in the Delta. It's a rural area. The, pl the places are far apart. It's not easy. Even poor people usually have to have a car or walk or take a train, so there are, there are blues about all those subjects. 
And this one is by Charlie Patton, who was the leading figure of the Delta Blues in the 1920s. And uh, this song is called Pony Blues. And I believe it's actually about a pony. He did. It's not a metaphor. A lot of times animals in blues songs are metaphors. This one, I think he really did ride a pony around. He was a short guy. <laughs> Sounds kind of absurd. He was a big music star. It sounds kind of strange that he would ride into town on a little pony, but I believe he did, at least sometimes. I think he owned a car later, too. And uh, this song also references about a train station in it, so it has a lot of transportation stuff in it. But let me try this one for you. Black man, here's up my pony. Saddle up my black man. I'm gonna find my rider, baby, in this world somewhere. Imagine the pony and that in the top. Uh, we have you. about 11 minutes, so oh. we'd love you to play a couple more songs. Oh, sure. So, yeah. Okay, so this one is from a different part of the blues world from uh, the East Coast, North Carolina singer named Blind Boy Fuller. Played a metal guitar, which I have one and I didn't bring it to the studio, but I'll try it here on this wood guitar here. And. Uh, 
And this one has to do with another favorite means of transportation, or I don't know if it's favorite, but kind of walking, which is, of course, the basic way to get around and still used in many rural places by people who have no other way to get places. happen to everybody how come it seem like i'm the only one so i keep on walking i'm trying to walk my twiddly way oh yeah i'm so glad twiddling on last always i got these coffee grounds in my coffee in my meals tax in my shoes keep sticking in my heels so I keep on walking I'm trying to walk my table away oh, yeah. I'm so glad to on last always Thank you. Um, 
would, those of our listeners who would like to hear more of your music, is there a CD available? Do you play regularly around town? Um, yeah, thank you. I do have some CDs, and you can get them from me. They might be at Music Millennium. You can also hear me on the fourth Saturday of every month. I play at Oakshire Brewing on Northeast 42nd, outside on their patio from um, 6 to 8 p.m. That's a good regular place to catch me. Also, most Sundays from about uh, 4 to 6 p.m. at Upright Brewing on North Broadway. I'm usually there. And I also have a radio show here on KBOO where I spin records. I don't sing and play on there, but it's a blues. It's part of Blues Junction, which is on every Saturday from 5 to 7. I do the fifth Saturday, which means it's only four or five times a year. But there will be one in September is the next one. And you can catch the old ones on the on the cable website of this this bike show or my show or any other ones that you look on there if any that you missed you can hear them they're archived down there so uh, let me do one more song for if we yeah, have time for uh, that hold on just for a second um yeah and um maybe um in a sentence or two um how did you discover blues music uh how did what what's what about it spoke to you well the blues has been part of mainstream American and world music since well before I was born. Like almost as soon as people started playing it and recording it anyway in the 1920s it became quite well known and it, so like the music my parents listened to was very blues influenced even though it, you know say like Billie Holiday um, Errol Garner Louis Armstrong I mean those were all blues musicians and they were and then when i was a teenager the music that was popular was what the rolling stones the eric clapton i mean those those were all bluesy acts too even you know even those british acts so the blues has always been out there yeah like so i grew up in rochester new york so when i lived in mississippi a lot of people were like well how, how did a guy from rochester get into the blues well <laughs> it's been everywhere um but then i of course felt the compulsion to learn more about the actual origins of it and geographically and historically and i've devoted my life to trying to learn more about it and to play it so and, i and i, 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 I personally am glad you have discovered <laughs> it and i <laughs> plan um to go and hear you live soon uh you have been listening to the bike show broadcasting from the cable studio in portland oregon and my name is alon rob i would like to thank our guest journalist and author jeff mapes blues musician and scholar steve chesabro and also our engineer Ty Walker and Chris Smith and Josh Hedrick. And a big thank you to our listeners, to you. Uh, all the best in the coming months. Safe and joyful rides. And we'll end the show with another blue song. So all right. Thank you, Alon. Yeah, I'm going to try one here by Robert Johnson, maybe the most well-known of the early blues singers, and one that he did that, again, is not about bicycles, but it is about trains. <laughs> I thought you were going to sing one of the songs about the devil. <laughs> Robert Johnson, and thank you so much, Steve. And I followed her to the station With a suitcase in my hand And I followed her to the station With a suitcase in my hand Well, it's hard 
to tell and it's hard to tell when all you love's in vain all my Looked in the eye. Well, when a train comes in the station, and I looked in the eye. And I felt so sad, so lonesome, that I could not help but cry. All my love's in vain. Listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. The time is 11:59 a.m. Next up is the news. Self-healthy. 